A verdict in a disturbing double murder case. The video game obsessed man facing punishment and what the judge says about his crimes. Mayor Stewart's call for action. If we are to make major structural changes to policing, it is the province that must act. Why some say he's passing the buck. And dual health emergencies take their toll. I cannot express how difficult this news has been to hear. Dr. Henry overcome by the dramatic spike in overdose deaths during the COVID crisis. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We start with a long-awaited verdict tonight in the high-profile murder of a Vancouver couple who were killed in 2017 in their own home. Rocky Rambo Waynam Cam was charged with first-degree murder in the deaths of 68-year-old Richard Jones and his wife, 64-year-old Diana Ma Jones. Rumi Nadea has the verdict with a warning. Some of the details in this story are disturbing. Justice for Diana Ma Jones's sister after three painful years. Madam Justice Jerome ruling crown proved beyond a reasonable doubt the killings of Ma Jones and Richard Jones were planned and deliberate. Rocky Rambo Waynam Cam guilty on two counts of first degree murder. His conduct was incomprehensible. Cam had no reason to hurt the victims, said Jerome. Mr. Cam's actions before, during and after the killings were goal-orientated. The attack controlled, not frenzied. The motive, not robbery or theft, said the judge. Cam's reasons for why he bought a hatchet, gloves and baseball hat at Canadian Tire two weeks before the killings, not believable, said Giroux. Cam testified he wanted to copy a TV show. Cam slashed Jones more than a hundred times and cut the throat of Ma Jones in the couple's home in September 2017. The accused eating a peach and drinking some milk before he fled. The severe extensive injuries inflicted with significant force speaks to intent, said Giroux. Maybe today you're not ready to talk about the whole ugly story, but at least say you're sorry. For what? You're an animal. The judge did not find Cam was confused or in a gaming consciousness. During the eight-hour police interrogation, he was grounded in reality, said Jerome. During the trial, defense argued for a manslaughter verdict, saying Cam, a university graduate with no criminal history, thought he was in a video game when he killed the couple. First-degree murder carries an automatic life sentence with no eligibility for parole for 25 years. Sentencing is June 18th. That's when victim impact statements will be read. Romina Dea, Global News. Some staggering numbers provide a bleak reminder that the province is tackling two health emergencies. BC is reporting May as the worst month ever for deadly overdoses, averaging more than five a day. Aaron MacArthur has more on the spike and why officials are concerned pandemic-related restrictions could be making matters worse. Temporary modular housing in Surrey, no shelter from the drug epidemic sweeping BC. Users forced to take more chances. I've lost two friends in the last two weeks. The BC Coroner's Service releasing statistics on overdose deaths in BC. The first five months of the year showing an alarming trend. 
deaths began to spike once COVID-19 hit in March. In May alone, 170 people died of overdoses, the single highest monthly total ever. Fentanyl to blame in 71% of cases. I cannot express how difficult this news has been to hear. And my thoughts and condolences go to the families and friends of those who have lost their loved ones, and I share your grief. These are our brothers and sisters, our co-workers, our sons, our daughters, our friends, our community. Managing both the opioid epidemic alongside COVID-19 is challenging. Social distancing measures mean people are using alone more frequently. The strength of drugs seems to be increasing. Six ODs in 2020 have involved car fentanyl, and the coroner is reporting huge doses in some fentanyl-related deaths. Tests are showing more than 50 micrograms per liter. Everyone from users to the provincial health officer calling for a safe supply, yet critics say it's not happening fast enough. BC has done more than most provinces, uh, and we're still in big trouble. We're tinkering around the edges with a whole bunch of good things, but we're not facing it right in the face. Vancouver still with the highest number of deaths on a city-by-city -city basis, but the Fraser Health region seeing sharp increases. So is Victoria, mostly men between 19 and 49. Former users say the crisis is only getting worse. You need the same response that we've put into COVID as you've put, that, that's the response that the overdose crisis needs. With social bubbles being expanded, the coroner is hopeful it will mean people can reconnect with friends, which might stem the tide of overdoses. So far, nothing has stopped the public health crisis declared in 2016. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. And the rising numbers of overdose deaths are in marked contrast to BC's fight against the novel coronavirus pandemic. There are 14 new cases for a total of 2,694 in BC. Another day without COVID-related death, though, which keeps that total at 167. 13 people are currently in hospital, an increase of one. Five of them in intensive care, also an increase of one. We'll bring in Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry now, who joins us. Keith, Dr. Henry also made it very clear, if Vancouver is chosen as an NHL hub city, those mm -hmm. discussions still ongoing, the rules around stopping the spread of COVID-19 aren't changing. No, she's very firm on that, and she released new details today of some of the, uh, the uh, features accompanying the plan uh, put forward to the NHL. First of all, teams will be limited to less than 50 people, so perhaps the roster's not as big or less uh, support staff, and they're going to remain in a bubble with themselves for more than 14 days. That 14-day uh, quarantine period is just is not how long they're all going to be there. They're going to be together as long as they continue to play hockey. Also announcing today, no family is going to be allowed to accompany the team. This is going to be confined to a group of smaller than 50 people, presumably all at the same hotel. There's not going to be any intermingling with anyone in the public. Dr. Henry, again, making it clear today that the NHL is welcome. There's a bit out there, but public health will not be compromised. I also think bringing hockey back to BC would be a very good thing. But let me be very clear. There are no exceptions to the rules or the public health guidelines that are in fact here in BC. And in no way will we compromise all the work that we have done and the health of British Columbians for the NHL or any other group. 
So Vancouver still has a lot of competition here. A lot of observers think Las Vegas is the lead choice for a West Coast or, or near Pacific time zone uh, city. Hard to see the NHL choosing two cities on the, on the West Coast or the Pacific time zone, given the time difference with the East Coast. But who knows? Edmonton is also said to be in the running. Uh, but Vancouver's uh, chances, I think, have improved because of the COVID-19 cases suddenly spiking upwards in the United States, making it potentially a less safe place to play hockey. We'll find out sometime in July. These are unprecedented times. You never know how that's going to go. Thanks, Keith. Well, with growing controversy over the use of force by police, Vancouver's mayor is calling on the province to act. Kennedy Stewart says his city can do little to affect policing because of the limitations under the B.C. Police Act. Jordan Armstrong has the province's reaction. Our city is built on stolen land. It was billed as a news conference for Vancouver's mayor to announce a proposed path forward for police reform. But as a person of privilege, it is often hard to know what concrete actions to take. So Kennedy Stewart's proposal is for someone else, namely the provincial government, to design and build the path. It is the province that must act. And here's why. The province determines how much funding municipalities must provide to local police, determines what training municipal officers receive. It writes and approves the Police Act, and it appoints all police board members. The Vancouver Police will arrest and remove any person who violates this court order. Stewart, who is also chair of the Vancouver Police Board, is essentially saying he is powerless to bring about any meaningful change. The province disagrees. No, he's incorrect uh, in many ways. Uh, the city of Vancouver has their own police department. Uh, they can set many policies in terms of the operations of their, of their police department. Solicitor General Mike Farnworth adds updating B.C.'s broader police act was already on his radar. In fact, he plans to convene an all-party committee when the legislature resumes later this month. To review the police act, uh, to bring forward uh, recommendations for a modern uh, police act for the 21st century. Back in Vancouver, the mayor says systemic racism and discriminatory street checks are just two issues he'd like to see investigated. But asked if there's one VPD policy or practice he would change today. The last thing I want to do in these circumstances is to overpromise. So for me to stand up here and say I'm going to end something today is basically impossible. VPD Chief Adam Palmer wouldn't grant an interview Thursday but said by email his department would fully participate in a review led by the province. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Meantime, the mayor expressed sadness at news that Vancouver police officers will not be welcome at any Vancouver Pride events this year. The Pride Society says it's banning all law enforcement from its virtual parade and festivals. It's also joining the Black Lives Matter movement, calling on the police to be defunded. The city currently requires organizers of permitted events to hire officers for crowd control, but the Pride Society is looking to challenge that. It just makes me sad that this is happening, and I'll do my best to try to bring the two parties together so we can move forward together. And a high-profile Metro Vancouver police officer is speaking out on this issue. Surrey RCMP Media Relations Officer Eleanor Sturko tweeted that as an LGBT police officer, when she wears her uniform and participates in Pride events, she does so not only to stand with the community, but to stand up to discrimination within our own institutions. She says she's disheartened by the decision.
Cleaning crews were called out after the City Hall statue of Captain George Vancouver was vandalized overnight. The vandalism was discovered this morning with gray and blue paint covering the life-size bronze statue. No word on who did it or why, but the incident comes as several statues across the U.S. and U.K. have been vandalized or toppled. Many of those statues commemorate people with links to African-American slavery and racism. Vancouver police are investigating. Well, concerns about police misconduct are top of mind for many right now. And a black Vancouver man is sharing his story, hoping for change. It's been two years since video captured his altercation with police in an incident where he alleges officers used excessive force. Catherine Urquhart has more on the status of his complaint today. Every time I see a cruiser, I have to look because I'm fearful of my life. This is crazy. Jamil Moore-Williams is still haunted by what happened to him more than two years ago when he was pushed to the ground and tasered multiple times by Vancouver police, allegedly for jaywalking. We were leaving a bar and there was a gentleman on the side of the road throwing beach pebbles, like big rocks, whipping it. I chose to cross because I didn't want to get hit by the rock and then as I'm crossing the streets, Cruiser is coming up and they start gonking me and it frightens me. This is illegal. Jamil's friend captured these images of what occurred in the early hours of February 11th, 2018, along the Granville Strip as several officers forced him to the ground. One member can be seen kneeing him. Jamil says he was tasered multiple times before VPD members took him to hospital, then jail. He was charged with jaywalking and obstruction, charges that were later stayed. The Vancouver resident says he has no doubt he was targeted because he's black. For you to see me and because I don't look like you and because I may be large to you and 14 shots later from the taser and, and knees and kicks, if that's... If that's what in your brain is, is needed to, to bring me down? That's, that's crazy, guys. After all this time, a report on the incident has just gone to Crown Council, which will determine if any of the officers involved will be charged criminally. The 23-year-old personal trainer says he's speaking out because there's systemic racism and it has to be addressed. I'm sick to my stomach, guys. It's not justice. What am I paying taxes for? I don't feel served, protected. Not at all. I feel targeted. This is like we need to really stop and, and address the police. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. There's been another eruption in the fight over the future of policing in Surrey. One city councillor who opposes the mayor's plan says city workers have been seen removing signs expressing support for keeping the RCMP. John Waugh spoke to councillor Linda Annis, who says she has the pictures to prove it. It's a growing landscaping trend in support of Surrey's current law enforcement. The people wouldn't put these signs up unless they really strongly wanted this. But these keep the RCMP in Surrey signs don't seem to be sitting well with city staff. Caught on camera, taking them away. I was shocked, and it's not a decision that they would have made themselves. It would have come from the top. As Mayor Doug McCallum's push towards a new municipal police force continues to divide city council and the community, Councillor Linda Anna says targeting lawn signs is a new low. We're getting into petty politics, and staff should not be involved in it. In a statement, the city writes, the signs were removed from public property and public right-of-ways. 
because it violates the following city ordinance. Saying that you can't put a sign there is crazy. And to have staff driving through neighborhoods looking for these signs is absolutely ridiculous. And this surveillance video shows someone in a marked municipal truck taking a sign off this property. The explanation, easements along the road, technically makes it city land. Yeah, I don't agree with that for sure. It's a, it's, it's our property. It's a good thing I don't see him because I would not be a friendly person. I think that's absurd. That's petty, petty, petty. The mayor did not respond to Global News' request for an interview. Residents who support the Surrey RCMP say the city's actions aren't exactly a surprise. I think he's ramming us on our throat. I don't like it at all. Perhaps it's just another sign the fight over Surrey's local law enforcement has reached a new level of hostility. John Hua, Global News. A slight reprieve for restaurants in deep trouble. They have lost millions since the COVID crisis began, forced to operate at only half capacity. But with that requirement now gone, is it too little too late? That story in just over a minute. Amazon has developed some amazing facial recognition technology, but there's at least one customer who won't be able to use it, at least for now. That story coming up on the news hour. And the Queen tries a video call that millions have struggled with, and the royal protocol she was still able to preserve later. Right now, though, restaurants are getting a bit of a reprieve from one of the most restrictive regulations put in place during the pandemic that they could only operate at 50% capacity. Well, now that limitation is gone, but as Ted Chernecki reports, it may still be too little too late to prevent an outright collapse in the BC bar and restaurant industry. Two weeks after reopening, restaurant owners are at a loss, both financially and about what to do next. In the suburbs, business is back on average to a little more than half, but downtown, it's Deadsville. So 30% of the market are prepared to go out, 30% are show me, I need to be convinced, and 30% are going to stay home. And so what we're working on is that middle audience. Here are the dining doldrums since reopening. A Restaurants Canada survey suggests 60% are still operating at a loss and 15 to 22% are just breaking even. In fact, 39 to 47% of respondents said the reopening has had a negative impact as more staff had to be hired to serve customers who just aren't there, at least not yet. I guess the perception that is out there somehow is that when we're reopened that somehow we're back to normal, but we're really not. And uh, that's why we're going to need more assistance and we're going to have to reinvent ourselves uh, in this new post-COVID world. What we now are requiring is that every uh, restaurant, pub or bar has to um, identify a number for their capacity that includes the patios. Today, BC announced it's removing its 50% seating capacity limit just so long as two meters social distancing can be maintained and if not, specific plexiglass can be used to separate customers. With COVID cases declining and 190,000 jobs on the line, BC may have had no choice. It's in the best interest of government to do that. There is going to be casualties. Maybe 30% of the industry is not going to make it. So that natural sort of uh, culling, if you will, will happen. Even if a restaurant can find a way to reach full seating, who's going to sit there? YVR is predicting passenger traffic will drop from 26 million last year to between 8 and 15 million for the next three years. That's up to 18 million potential diners gone, more than triple BC's entire population. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Well, the ice rinks and dugouts have been so quiet since the pandemic hit. Why amateur sports might make a comeback, so comeback sooner than later.
Also tonight, new developments in the race for a COVID cure. for northbound traffic over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge because of a stalled vehicle. Looks like a tow truck and main roads are on scene and traffic is slow with two, three lanes of two. Bank securely from anywhere, anytime with CIBC, whether it's paying bills, depositing checks, or transferring money in Canada and around the world. With CIBC, you can do it all 24-7. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, hive of a broken down vehicle on the Alex Fraser Bridge. Empty fields and arenas could soon be busy again after the B.C. government released its safety protocols for the return of amateur sports. The new rules protect amateur sports organizations from lawsuits connected to COVID-19. Richard Zussman reports. It's a sound that's been missing for months, but now people are getting back to play. It's an easy sport. It's cheap. You don't have to buy a lot of equipment. You can stay proper distance from people. The provincial government making changes this week, making a return to sport possible, taking on the legal liability for volunteer sports organizations. We were hearing that organizations, which are primarily volunteer-run, were having trouble getting insurance uh, due to COVID-19. But that is just the first hurdle. Avia Sport, a non-profit sports organization, has created a set of guidelines for the leagues that cover the 800,000 British Columbians who play sport. The 35-page document includes suggestions around locker rooms being closed, players arriving ready to go, and no contact sports for now with a zero-tolerance policy for playing while sick. All the amateur sport organizations are building their own plans for the safe return to, to sport in the community. So uh, we have 15 sports already who have their plans in place. One of those sports is soccer. BC Soccer allowing sanctioned play to start as soon as Friday. The guidelines extensive, including a focus on drills over games. Soccer will look a bit different in the short term, that's for sure, because of the distancing measures that uh, need to be put in place by all of the clubs and members, but um, but we're happy to be back on the fields. I do absolutely think that uh, youth sports will be coming very soon and they'll be safe. Municipalities are slowly opening up sports facilities as well, although those that remain closed are that successful in keeping people away. The community centres themselves are also targeting a reopening that is much quicker than originally planned municipality by municipality. We'll start to slowly see indoor spaces open this summer and into the fall we'll see more and more organized activities happening in all of our recreation centers. For municipal sports fields there are different rules around the province but Victoria is getting ready to open up all outdoor facilities starting Friday. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Up ahead how the humble goldfish can be a threat to the environment. Many people release it out into the wild. A warning about the devastating impact of invasive species in B.C. Also tonight, the stolen Banksy artwork painted on a door and where they found it. Believe B.C., featured on Global News Hour at 6 and 980 CKNW, celebrates the innovative minds working together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe B.C., presented in partnership with B.C.L.C. With every play, you're making B.C. even better. Counterflow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel. Travel traffic is in good shape, both north and south. And good news, over at the Alex Fraser Bridge, just cleared that disabled vehicle that was northbound just before mid-span. Bank securely from anywhere, anytime with CIBC. Whether it's paying bills, depositing checks, or transferring money in Canada and around the world, with CIBC you can do it all 24-7. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. 
A private funeral was held today for Chantelle Moore, a young indigenous woman from Vancouver Island who was killed in a police-involved shooting last week in Edmonston. Moore moved to the northern New Brunswick city three months ago to be closer to her mother and six-year-old daughter. About a dozen family members from B.C. traveled to the province earlier this week. Edmonston police said she was shot after an officer doing a wellness check allegedly encountered Moore with a knife. Quebec's independent police watchdog agency is investigating. The province has announced a coroner's inquest will be held into Moore's death as well. There are wider calls for an inquiry into systemic racism against Indigenous people in New Brunswick. But Premier Blaine Higgs says he wants to understand what happened in this particular case before taking that step. But let's have this case be treated with the fairness and an unbiased approach of what really happened. And once we understand that, does it fit in that category? Does it not? The facts will speak for themselves. The coroner's inquest is a formal court proceeding that allows for public presentation of evidence, but it stops short of assigning blame or legal responsibility. Jurors can make recommendations, though, to prevent deaths in similar circumstances in the future. Amazon won't allow police to use its facial recognition technology for at least a year. The announcement comes after years of pressure from several groups, including the American Civil Liberties Union. Many are concerned the company's technology is racially biased. There is also concern it would be used to create an automated system capable of identifying and tracking anyone. Amazon placed the moratorium to give lawmakers the time to implement ethical use of the technology. Organizations that work with law enforcement to identify victims of child sexual exploitation and human trafficking will still have access to it. Another Banksy painting is making news, this time because it was recovered after a theft. Italian authorities unveiled the stolen artwork by the enigmatic British artist. It was painted on one of the emergency exit doors of the Bataclan Music Hall in Paris as a tribute to the victims of the 2015 terror attacks there. The piece appears to depict a person mourning. 90 people were killed in the terror attack back in 2015. The door was recovered Wednesday during a search of a home near the Adriatic coast. No arrests have been made. In Health Matters tonight, there is new hope in the fight against COVID-19. Vaccine researchers are making progress and surgeons have, for the first time, been able to successfully perform a double lung transplant on a young COVID patient. Tom Costello has more. The reconstruction. At Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago, a dramatic example of the devastation caused by COVID-19. On the left, a healthy pair of lungs. On the right, the lung of a woman in her 20s ravaged by the virus. It took a double lung transplant to save her life. While she still has a long road ahead of her, I'm extremely hopeful that she's going to make a full recovery. Now, some of the nation's leading biotech companies report fast-track progress in developing vaccines and treatments. Moderna says it plans to start a final stage vaccine trial with 30,000 volunteers in July. We hope, um, if everything goes to plan, that we could have a vaccine by early next year or even by the end of this year. Vaccine candidates at Oxford University and Johnson & Johnson also entering phase three trials. Walter Reed, Army Lab, also announcing it's starting human vaccine trials.
Why is it important to be in phase three clinical trials this summer? Phase three is that final mile, that last mile before the vaccine is available to the public. And so it's incredibly good news that we're making it to that step. But it's not just vaccines. Several companies are working on antibody treatments. Regeneron, which Lester visited earlier this year, now says human trials are already underway. If you haven't been infected, it should block you from getting infected. And if you've already been infected, it should help you smother this virus so it doesn't cause any damage. An antibody treatment could be available later this year. A vaccine widely available could be early to mid next year, but that depends on everything going just right. Later on the news hour, inventing a guide dog that never needs a rest. My ultimate goal is to make the lives of other people better. The eighth grade robotics whiz who came up with the idea. And in sports, why the Whitecaps say there will be no excuses when the season starts again. It's going to be Zussi, actually, who curves it in, straight up in the air it goes. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Back to the story about that goldfish. Invasive species are a big problem in B.C., but more people are starting to get the message. That's the conclusion of a new report tonight on the ongoing battle. As Linda Ellsworth reports, even something as harmless as a pet goldfish can cause big problems if it's released into the wild. A child's first pet is very often a cute little goldfish. We named it, and then when we were tired of feeding it or changing its water, many people release it out into the wild because they think it's a good thing. That's a wrong thing. This is why. That's unreal. Because goldfish are not a native species, they have no natural predators. Or at least, they grow unchecked, both in size and numbers. We have lots of goldfish who have been introduced into the wild that are now a pound, pound and a half, that are eating all the same food that our native uh, fish would want and changing that habitat. The same is true for other pets like rabbits and turtles. The problem is so pervasive that the Invasive Species Council of BC created the Don't Let It Loose program. Most invasive species that we don't want have been introduced intentionally by people or moved by people. The list of invasive species includes European fire ants, American bullfrogs, chafer beetles, and more recently, the Japanese beetle. We don't want it here. It attacks over 300 different species. All those nice roses, all those fruit trees we have in Vancouver, it would decimate those. We contribute to the spread by moving infested soil, turf and wood to different places. That includes plants like the giant hogweed, which has caustic sap that can cause severe burns. But we can also play a role in reducing the problem. This is a time when people are starting to be active on our land base, even underneath a COVID environment. We're starting to go to camps and playgrounds, et cetera. Let's not move on our invasive species around. As for pets. More and more people are becoming aware that letting their pets out into the wild is not the responsible thing to do for either the pet or for the environment. Keep your pets inside where, the, where they belong. They're not meant to be part of our native ecosystem. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. I'm very glad to be able to join you. Coming up after Christie's forecast, the Queen makes history yet again, thanks to the pandemic and technology. She had some help figuring out that conference call. You had to know it. Can be, tr can be quite a struggle. All right, let's check in right now on our own conference call with Christie uh, up in North Vancouver and some nice sunny breaks today, Christie. 
Yes, although it's a little cooler now that, that I'm away from the sun, but certainly when the sun came out today, it warmed things up. It was a pleasant day, although we did see a few showers. There was a severe thunderstorm watching effect, though, for the southern interior regions, Boundary and Kootenai areas. That has ended now, so you should be able to uh, stay safe over the next little while, although you still could see an isolated thunderstorm. Now, last night, the skies were red and through the Okanagan. Lots of people sending me photos from there. Here's a look at the sunset from the west Kelowna area. Look at one. This is just pinks and purples and oranges. Love seeing that. Thank you so much, Lorraine, for that one. Another one from the Lake Country region. Thank you to Nicola for that. And one last one here for you from Kamloops. Thank you to Alicia, Alicia for that. Um, so it's so nice to see your sunset shots. I appreciate it. This evening, things will settle down. We are expecting another wave to move on shore tomorrow morning. South Coast region, mainly Metro Vancouver, will see rainfall in the morning. But we are going to see See that shift inland by the afternoon so breaks the blue sky although we still do have a chance of showers but certainly brighter by the end of the day on Friday that will be a nice reprieve after the week that we've had inland regions you do have a risk of thunderstorms once again and then into our Saturday still more cloud and showers in the forecast so this weekend is certainly a little unsettled and still uncertain so keep tuning back in there's your Friday forecast though mainly cloudy showers and a risk of thunderstorms and really that's the pattern all across the province tomorrow so the breaks of blue sky are really just that, blue sky. Otherwise, you can expect mainly cloudy skies. And here's a look at your five-day forecast. So uh, tomorrow, the breaks will happen later in the day for Metro Vancouver. Your so far is still looking a little unsettled with some sunshine in the mix. Certainly not a washout at this point. We're not expecting the rain until Monday. Still a couple days away, so keep tuning back in and we'll refine that forecast for you. And one last sunset shot, this one from Kelowna. This is your central windows weather window. It looks like the sky is on fire. And uh, Dean actually said that. He said, I thought my, my house was on fire for a second there, but it was just the sunset. So thanks, everyone, for your great shots. All right, guys, back to you. Spectacular. All right, thanks, Christy. Another first for Queen Elizabeth. The monarch took part in her first public video call. I'm very glad to be able to join you today. She spoke with four healthcare providers a week ago about the challenges they face looking after people close to them during the pandemic. The 94-year-old was joined by her daughter, Princess Anne, on the call. Other members of the royal family too, including son Prince Charles and grandson Prince William and Kate, have been joining numerous video conference calls. The Queen was last to join the call and the first to leave, which is one piece of royal protocol that Buckingham Palace preserved. There's still protocol during a pandemic. <laughs> Apparently there is. <laughs> I love Indeed. That. All right, there you see Squire and uh, looking ahead to what's coming up in sports. Squire? Okay, we'll talk about the NHL's latest news, the uh, Whitecaps and MLS's latest news, and the PGA is back with no fans and social distancing like Ricky Fowler will demonstrate right now. Staying away from you. Eight of the world's top ten teed off in the Charles Schwab Challenge, including a few Canadians as well. That's Ricky Nick. Look forward to that. Also, seeing is believing what a grade eight student has invented for the sight impaired. The robotic guide dog that could be a game changer later.
The community frontline workers thank you for all you do for all of us. Watch Global News at Noon when we tell your stories and show our appreciation for your continued service. Visit globalnews.ca slash frontline champions in partnership with Fortis BC and IGA. It's almost an incident getting Squire's phone plugged in. Thank you for plugging it's it in. It's charging now. It's charging Excellent. now. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> All good. All right. You can take it away. We'll okay. watch your phone for you. Thank you. What's your password? Um, <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, I think. Maybe there's a zero, one, two, good three, four. Uh, the NHL and the players have agreed that a good time to start training camps would be July 10th, providing all the safety measures can be met. Now, this date is not written in stone. It's a hoped-for date. But at least everyone agrees, which is good. And that means if you're a Canadian team and you want to hold your camp in Canada, and if it is July 10th, then players that are not in Canada right now should be back by June 26th at the latest to go through the two-week quarantine. The start of the 24-team Stanley Cup tournament, that hasn't been decided upon. Neither has the two hub cities, although most people think Las Vegas will be one of them. The Major League Soccer Tournament in Orlando at Disney World next month figured out what teams will play in what groups and with whom. There will be six groups. One will have six. All the others will have four. The Whitecaps are in Group B with their old friends, the Seattle Sounders, the FC Dallas crew, and the San Jose Earthquake. The top two in each group and the three make that the four best third-place finishers would move on to the knockout stage. Each team will play each other in its group once in the round robin. It's been a while since we've seen the Whitecaps play, but at least the last time they did play, they won. Into the penalty area, he's got room, it's back to Ricketts, it's 1-0! The last Whitecaps goal was scored over three months ago in their second game of the season, a 1-0 road win over the LA Galaxy. By the time they play their first game in Orlando, it'll be four months between games. There will be no warm-up matches, but Mark DeSantos wants to see his team take an aggressive approach from the opening kick. I really think it's a question of mindset. And if you go play a tournament like that, afraid of every opponent, you'll have a tough time moving forward. So my job as a coach is going to be to make sure that our mindset is not being afraid and going there to win. The Whitecaps are in the same group as San Jose, Dallas, and Seattle. The fact they are playing a Cascadia rival like the Sounders can only help get the juices flowing, despite the game being played in Orlando and with no fans in the stands. I think if you're going to have a competition like that, it's important to have uh, games that are, uh, that are important also for our fans. So the Caps need to get to work. They'll have the next couple of weeks to train at home, then they fly to Orlando. It's anyone's guess how these players will react to this most extraordinary season. Will Lucas Cavallini give them the burst of offense he showed in preseason? Will hot, humid summer conditions in Orlando change the way they play? Those answers will reveal themselves, but DeSantos is sure of one thing. We're not allowing excuses. We're not allowing it's too hot. We don't have enough time preparation. We don't have exhibition games. These are all things that hold us back. If you're going to look at all of that as excuses, you might as well not even go in the plane. <laughs> Ricky Fowler in his off uh, time. He and Brooks Kepka went back to the 70s for a mustache. Here's Kepka, world's number three, this birdie putt. And check out the new facial hair. There you go.
Meanwhile, over at Rory McIlroy, world number one at two under par, like Kepka. That's a nice birdie. Justin Thomas had a good round. He's tied for second at six under par. This is on the 17th. One of the co-leaders is Harold Varner III on the 18th to go to minus seven. Count it. And then we have some shots of the day, starting with John Rahm. Like you said, that's been so bad. Oh, look at Rahm here at the end. Rahm's at one under par. That's the one I said was but this one's better. Sun Kang. Didn't have a great day, except for this moment. Ace. All the rust came off right there. Uh, Spanish La Liga is back. But we're going to show you this for one second. Hold on here. Adam Hadwin had a great day, but the cameras weren't on when he was on. Same with Corey Connors. They're both very close to the top of the leaderboard. All right, now Spain. Sevilla against Batiste. And Sevilla took the lead on a penalty, and then Fernando with the header gets the insurance goal. They win it 2-0. They're in third place, eight points behind league-leading Barcelona. There you go. Run to the empty seats. Almost didn't notice because they've got them colored, different colors there. But, uh, yeah, Sneaky. empty stadium. All right, here's Andrew, and now the preview of Global News at 11, Ann. Thanks, Chris. We'll have more tonight on the many Vancouver area statues and historical names that may be subject to removal due to their ties to past wrongs. It follows an act of vandalism overnight to the Captain George Vancouver statue in front of Vancouver City Hall and similar incidents around the world. And an attempt by the province to seize three Hells Angels clubhouses has failed. They were in Vancouver, Kelowna, and Nanaimo. We'll tell you why when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock. Sophie, Chris. All right, Anne, thanks very much. Up next, a grade 8 girl who's an inspiration to grown-ups. Her mission to make lives better, next. Time now to thank another one of our healthcare heroes during the COVID-19 pandemic. Tonight's nomination comes from the Vancouver General Hospital ER team. They would like to acknowledge Dr. Robert Reynolds, an infectious disease specialist. A nursing unit clerk says Dr. Reynolds makes us laugh every time he goes to the ER to consult. They say his excitement for bugs and drugs is contagious. And he's always happy to show off his latest bug, worm, or insect catch. The team says they are so lucky to have him as part of their team. He brightens our days. His laugh and sense of humor is as infectious as any disease he sees. <laughs> if you have a healthcare hero you would like to see featured on the news hour, send an email to bchealthcareheroes at globalnews.ca. Don't forget to include information about why they are your hero and some pictures, and we could feature them next. Awesome. We've had so many good nominations, mm -hmm. too. Well, a Moncton teen with a passion for artificial intelligence has created a robotic guide dog. As Global's Shelley Steves reports, she also recruited her dad to do some of the testing. Want to try it out? When you first meet Kaya Peja, it's hard to believe the grade 8 student just turned 14, given her understanding of robotics and her desire to help. My ultimate goal is to make the lives of other people better. Particularly those with visual impairments. After watching a video about the hardships faced by some people who use guide dogs, Kaya put her creative mind to work for a school project and designed and built Sconewell, a robotic guide dog. Which is play on words for it's Sconewell. Made some sketches like on top of a German shepherd, like a picture of a German shepherd. 
and just marked out some lines with a ruler. And handmade this metal prototype that's even shaped like a dog. Just like a guide dog, he has a pole and you can grab onto it and he will lead you around. She programmed sensors in the front of Sconewell so he can detect an obstacle and guide the user around it. Diane Bergeron is president of CNIB Guide Dogs. I just think that tapping into the intelligence and brain power of our youth is, is spectacular. So I think that it's fantastic that a, a young girl has done this. She says robotic guide dogs may one day improve access to public places for people with visual impairments. A robotic dog may also benefit people with allergies or those who simply don't want the responsibility of caring for a live animal. I hope that I can get it to a point where it can do everything that an actual guide dog can do and more and he can just improve the lives of everyone. After she starts and finishes high school, of course. Shelly Steves, Global News, Moncton. Wow. I love how it has a metal tail, too. Yeah. Does the tail wag? Didn't look like it. <laughs> but you know what? I got a feeling she's going places, that oh, young girl. Oh, yeah. Grade 8. Holy Absolutely. Cow. All right. Uh, final word on the weather from Christy. Thanks. So another wave of rain. Welcome to January, everyone. This is typical for June, and it is good to have the moisture. So wet weather tomorrow morning, but breaks a blue sky later tomorrow afternoon. We should warm up to about 18 or 19. That's not bad for this time of year. That's nice. All right. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a great night. Good night, all.